It's always fun to follow that because it's so epic. Like, what I'm about to say is as good as that thunder that just roared or something. Uh, <laughs> good morning. My name is Evan. I get to come and bring the word this morning. We're going to start by, if you would, stand with me. Uh, and we're still in this series, so the 10 words, the instructions, uh, what we know as the 10 commandments in Exodus. So we are on the eighth word today, and it comes from verse 15, but I'm going to start uh, just the, the preface verses of t- chapter 20 of Exodus 1 through 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then our word for the day, you shall not steal. Let's pray. Father God of all life, of all creation, of all provision, we your people come to you to worship you, to glorify you, to exalt you, and to learn from you today. So, would you open my mouth and out of the overflow, would you work in my heart and fill me anew again to speak and to preach your word, that we would all see your truth, walk in your ways, be awakened to your life, and that you would be truly known and glorified in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please take a seat. Well, it's great to be back with Manitou. Um, how's it going this summer? How's summertime? It's good. <laughs> Two people are really enjoying their summertime. Um, Joe is gone. He's been gone for a month now on sabbatical, sabbatting. Sabbatting, that's a verb. And uh, he comes back in a couple weeks, and it's great just to be able to fill in. And Brett has, what I know of him, been doing a killer job filling in with everything. So here's to you, good sir. Well done. Good and faithful. Um, yeah, and I, I feel like I've missed the summer too. Uh, we had our second child, our second boy, uh, three weeks ago now. So we're still in the throes of, I wake up and my eyes, like, I, I wake, they wake up crossed. If you guys ever experienced that, like all of a sudden my wife's like, can you help me with this? And I wake up and I go, oh, okay. And then I have to straighten my eyes out and then straighten my brain out and then figure out what she wants me to do uh, and then stumble through the dark and do it. So. That's what I'm coming off of, and it's been great. Uh, our little guy's name is Alistair, and he's a bundle of joy who does exactly what a baby should do. Um, so if you've been a parent, fill in the blank. He's nailing it. So, uh, <laughs> so we are uh, in the eighth word today, and we're, we're going to jump in um, just with a preface. I, not having been within Manitou, I am one of the pastors over at New Life downtown, so it's all in the family, and uh, it's just a stone's throw from here, and I get to come over. So this is, I think, my fourth time being with you all in Manitou, which is amazing. Uh, and it's such a joy every time. And the earnestness of your worship, um, the earnestness of your passion and desire for God. And I think really there's a, a unique spirit that the Lord has given you all in this, in this town, in this city, to believe that, that there is a portion of belief that he is imparting to you in Manitou to say, we believe God is here, that God is is present and that God is at work and that we as people are going to lean in to see what he has for the city and the life of it. So uh, it's just, it's always exciting um, to come and to see you leaning into a belief in life with God and what he's gonna do in this city. So we're, we're jumping in and the command is as short as you shall not steal, but we need to understand that these commands as a whole is, is kind of a background preface um, are first and foremost grounded in God's gracious deliverance. 
that where we find ourselves in this story, when he's telling us, you shall not steal, and we back up for seven previous commands before that, and then that intro part of, I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of Egypt, out of slavery, that first and foremost, that these commandments are grounded in God's gracious deliverance, that he has already delivered, and as the deliverer, as the God of these people who has given them his name, Yahweh, he then says, now I instruct you as my people to live in these ways, my ways. Uh, that he has gained their freedom and that these commands, number two, are intended to protect the freedom that God has given them. That he has delivered them, that he has parted the sea, that he has brought them through, that he's defeated Egypt's army, that he has provided for them in the desert. And he says, I'm bringing you out of slavery as a free people and the ways in which I'm instructing you to live now through these commandments are ways that will protect the freedom that I have gained for you. Number three, that they reveal God's character and our calling. That it's not just who he is that he has delivered and now protect that, but it's actually showing us that this is the kind of God that he is. That he is a God of deliverance, that he is a God of provision. And this is then the kind of people that he is calling us to be a people that reflect him, so worship only him, a people that reflect him and carry his name, those previous commandments of do not use my name in vain because you're carrying my very character and my renown when you carry my name. So they reveal God's character and our calling. And then I'm gonna tack on one as a fourth uh, that, that ties into today, that these commandments are both personal and communal. That when God is instructing us in his scriptures and he's telling us, you do not steal, you do not murder, you do not lie, bear false witness, and we're going through these, these commandments, that he's saying them as an individual mandate. You, the individual, all of us in this room that we're gleaning from it, you self-regulate, self-monitor, self-govern to keep these commands and therefore to uphold my renown in this world, to, to walk in these ways of freedom. And at the same time, that the people who carry these commands as individuals, we are part of the whole, right? It's, uh, it's not quite the uh, Jungle Book thing, like the strength of the wolf is the pack, the strength of the pack is the wolf, but it's something similar to say that we are members of a whole, and to the degree that we uphold these commands on ourselves, we are representing a community of Christ, a community of God, and as we do this, then the community itself sinks or swims, it, it has abundance of life or scarcity of life. It, it flourishes or it withers in the way that we as a whole interact with one another. So today we are looking at a command that is straightforward, four words. You shall not steal. Don't do it. And we all probably have kid, uh, stories as kids. You guys remember the first thing you stole? Has anyone in here not stolen something? Like, have you gone? <laughs> yes! We, that's amazing! My life of crime started at three at a Michael's craft store <laughs> and a glue stick that was on the ground, a hot glue gun, glue stick, and I saw it, and you know what? I didn't know where it went. So where did it go? Under my shirt. And I remember sweating bullets, walking through the checkout line and getting into the car and showing my mom and her saying, what is that? And I don't know where it went. And marching me back in, and my life of crime pretty much ended right there too. So uh, 
I had to apologize. But most of us have that kind of story, that kid's story of I saw the gum pack and I just couldn't resist. Or this kid in my class had the really cool Micro Machines car, uh, which dates myself. I don't know. It was a different generation. What was it for you? Gigapets? What? Pokemon. <laughs> I was never part of that generation. <laughs> Whatever it was, I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and I felt bad or didn't feel bad. Uh, so we probably all have those stories. And so we have those individual stories, but then as a whole and as a corporate, it's amazing that as society, we can also sink or swim within theft. You could probably think of big cities that have big crime rates and what, what goes on there, and, and it just seems to be the spiral, and how do you break out of it? Um, there's also cities that, like I said, sink or swim, they can swim together. Uh, we took a vacation 2012 because the previous year, my mother-in-law had battled cancer and had come out six months of on and off chemo and had, had won um, and was in remission, was feeling stronger, and strength was coming back, and they called up all of their kids and they said, hey, we're going on a trip to Italy to celebrate. Do you want to come? And we said, Yes, of course we want to go. It's Italy. Can we get time off work? Sure. And all the pieces fell in place, so we go to Italy. And uh, we're taking this tour of the town of Siena. Have anybody been to Siena? Have any idea about Siena? It's beautiful, beautiful city, beautiful town square, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years old. Um, and as we're taking this tour of this town, the tour guide's talking about uh, what they refer to as contrads or contrados. It's basically districts of the city of Siena, where it's not just like Colorado Springs, Manitou, we would, we would kind of say we have the regional pockets. Well, there's Manitou or there's Old Colorado City, downtown, west side, Briargate. Um, and, and we would say we kind of belong to these geographical. Theirs are geographical, but they're also uh, very identity oriented, that you are born into one of these contrads. And for your entire life, you are that contract. That is who you are. And they have animals that go with each one. So one's the rhino, and one's the peacock. And, and wherever you move in the city, you are still, this is who you are. And then they have the palio races, which are these horse races twice a year. Um, and they fill the entire town square with sand, and then race horses that represent the various districts. And there is a huge sense of identity, because you are born into one of these contrads then your identity is formed around, this is who we are as a people. And who we are as a people then, your contrad wants to be proud of who you are. We don't wanna be the people that say, oh yeah, we're from you know, District 14 and we kind of stink, like we just stink at everything and we're not smart and we're not attractive and we don't, we don't, know, we don't do anything. Um, but rather, in this city of Siena, they actually, you're born into it and there's this immense amount of pride around which district you're born into, and you carry that with you your whole life, and because of that, there is more accountability to maintain excellence in what you're doing. So we're taking this tour, and they're just talking about it, and, on, and there'd be city gates with the different animals uh, of each contract on them, and they would talk about, and the, the tour guide would point out, oh yeah, and crime, statistically, regionally and nationally, is lower in Siena than any other city because of the ownership that people feel through these contracts. To say, I belong to this community and we're watching out for each other. And they were saying, she was telling us a story specifically of stealing, that it's really hard to even get away with stealing because you're born into it, everybody knows each other. 
And if you, you know, if you were at the store and little, you know, Mikey was getting out of line, um, Michelangelo that is, because it's Italy. So Mikey's getting out of line, they would know who Mikey was because he was part of this community and they would expect something more from him. And they would know who Mikey is, but they'd also know who Mikey's parents are. And they'd say, Mikey, don't make us go talk to your parents. And guess what? We know who your grandparents are and who their parents were. And it keeps on going. And there is this heritage of identity that is handed down to them because they have a belonging into this community. And when we get a command like do not steal, we have to ask ourselves, is it just an individual command or is it also a sense of belonging to a community that is striving for something greater, not just a horse race and we won, but the very name of the people of God has been put on us and we are trying to represent God rightly in the way that we go about our lives. And therefore, by stealing, we not only steal the object, but we steal something of the reputation or of the character or of the honor and the renown due to God and his people by the way we live. So we come to this, and I just wanna say, is it possible to live in a life more communally where stealing takes on a different thing? So um, I start with that story to say this is who we belong to. It's a community, it's a personal command, it's a communal command. And so I wanna dig in a little bit into why we steal, what the text has to say about economics in general and the culture um, of that time, and then how do we respond? So first, why do we steal? Um, Again, we have one pure heart in the room right now who's never stolen anything. I can't believe it. I'm like, I'm the pastor up here, and can you back me up? Have you stolen something, like a little something? Yeah, yeah, last week, okay, right. Communion and confession are later. Perfect. Uh, why we still, and I just, I, I was looking up a couple articles to make sure I had a, a general full idea of, there, it's not just stealing, because we, we need to understand, we're, we're stealing, but there's a, always going to be a motive behind it, but why is that? Because we'll see when the Lord is discussing do not steal, it's set in a context that addresses all of these things. So the first one is greed. Um, why are we still? Because we want more. Because we're greedy. Because there's something about what you have that I want, and I'm just going to take it. And it's not, it's not about consequences. It's not about representing a greater whole. It's just about, you got it. I want it. I'm going to go for it. Uh, the next one, which is quite different than the first, not greed, but need. We steal out of an actual tactical need for whatever it is that we're stealing. Uh, we just went to the play Les Miserables up in Denver. Um, and that entire story, the, the, the catalyst for it is that Jean Valjean and his family have a need to eat. And so he steals bread. And then he gets caught stealing bread. And then he gets imprisoned for years and years and years for stealing a loaf of bread. And then the rest of the redemptive story plays out. But it all comes back to you have a just practical need for whatever it is, a basic human need, food, shelter, love. I need to eat, so I'm going to take it. The next one, thrill. This is when we start getting into, uh, you know, clip. Domaniacs, that's the, that's the right one, right? That's the right, <laughs> perfect. Um, 
where there's just something about you do it once and that was exciting and you do it again and again and again and there's, there's literally something that shifts in our minds to say there's just a thrill. I'm not even looking for the object, I'm looking for the emotion and the feeling uh, that comes with it. And then the next one, don't put it up yet, because I'm gonna say that these first three, greed and need and thrill, when we would look at these, these are pro- we probably don't fit into these categories that much. If we have stolen, it probably wasn't for greed. Our hearts are kindish enough to not have to say, I'm gonna do you harm by taking what you have. They're not needy enough to say, I'm gonna go steal that loaf of bread. It, it, there's definitely times probably where various ones of us have been in that point in life. Um, it wasn't for the thrills of it. It could be this last one, discontentment. That we get down to this idea of stealing, of taking what somebody else has for the sheer fact that whatever we already have, we have just grown to be discontent with it. And in American culture, this one is particularly pointed to say it's not new enough, it's not big enough, it's not enough. I just want more. And I'm discontent with what I already have because we're not told to accept a life of simplicity. We're not told to accept a life of, uh, of just enjoyment in the small things. What we're told is you can't just go camping in a tent. You should want an RV, right? You should go bigger and better. You can't just have a small family vacation road tripping. You should want to take the plane to Disney World and stay there for five days. You should want more and more and more. And whatever you have, you know what? It's two years old. So my, uh, I was actually was trying to pull up a picture on my iPhone the other day. And my iPhone is three and a half years old now. You know how long it takes for a picture to come up on a three and a half year old iPhone? It's forever. It's not new enough. I want more. I'm now discontent with something that's only three years old because the culture just keeps on telling us it's not new enough. It's not good enough. It's not enough in itself. And so jealousy, coveting, grumbling, they all just start affecting us. And yet, Whatever our reason for stealing is, the scripture in this context, because what we're seeing in Exodus 20 isn't just this one isolated commandment. And this one is, in particular, these, these few that are in here of, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. They are so quick that we barely have context for what goes into them. When you tell me, God, that I shouldn't steal, I should have this idea of, well, why not? Why, what, what is going on around that you're able to give me four words and expect me to kind of know what else is happening? So I want us to jump in to what the context is that God says, you and your pursuit of loving God and loving others, I am instructing you, do not steal. The first is this, is when he's writing this, and this is why we backed up in our scripture reading the very beginning to verses one and two, he's writing to a people that he has just delivered out of slavery, that they themselves were possessions, that he has freed them, and that he is, they're in between, written to people between slavery and the promised land. So he's called them out and he's given them his name and he has identified them as his people and he has freed them and yet they're not quite in the promised land where they will start setting up towns and cities and agriculture and their ways of life. But he's calling them into the way in which 
they will represent his name rightly. In this middle ground, I'm, t- I'm taking Moses up to the mountain and I'm giving him my instruction and I'm sending him back down so that you know when you enter into that place how I expect you to live and that you start doing it and practicing it today. Along with this, that it's, as we live into the identity of who God calls us to be, we become that identity by living how God calls us to live. It's this idea of this identity is placed on us. You are my people. And I'm calling you then to live in a certain way to, to represent me rightly. And not only is this people between slavery and the promised land, these people are also written to a people who are completely reliant on God. Because this is the context, this is what I'm filling out for you all. That God is writing a commandment, having delivered them from slavery, from Egypt, and he's telling them, do not steal. This is a, this is a practical tactile, it's, they can touch, what am I stealing? And he's telling them, don't do it. And he's writing them at a time when they are completely reliant on God. They are in the desert space. They are without great possessions. They are without enough food for two days except for on Saturday, or uh, this would be Friday when they get to collect it for the Sabbath as well. They're reliant on manna. They complain about that, so God gives them some quail. They're thirsty, so Moses hits a rock and then he's supposed to speak to it, but he hits it again and he gives them water. They are a people reliant on the cloud and the pillar of fire for direction, for light, for warmth, for protection. They are a people who are in every aspect of their lives reliant on God. And he knows that he's sending them into a promised land. And he's telling them, don't steal. When you get there, when you start to have things, when you start to till your own soil and grow your own crops, don't stop relying on me. I'm your provider. Don't steal. And number three, I want to say that culturally, as a community, this is where the community aspect comes in, he's writing this holistically about our working, consuming, and giving. That it's it's not just an individual commandment. He's actually writing this to the people of Israel about the entirety of their economy. That, and, and we're gonna go through a number of verses in just a second. But this is, this is a unique thing that we need to start turning towards to say, it's not just you as an individual, self-govern and don't steal, but it's us as a people live in such a way that are working, that are consuming of whatever we've earned and, and acquired, and that are giving are all holistically addressed by a commandment that says don't steal. And I'm gonna show you why. Because it's the production, the consumption, and the distribution, it's the economy. It starts in Leviticus 19, nine through 11. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall not strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant, because I am Yahweh your God. And this commandment is immediately repeated right here. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. He's writing to people who at this point have no land about the land that they will have. And he's writing to them in such a way as it's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. On one side, he's saying, don't do this, which should make us ask the question, well, what then shall we do? 
If it's not stealing and taking something that belongs to me, what's the other side of this idea, God? What are you actually calling us into? And he sums it up here in this scripture in Leviticus where he's saying, not only is it do not take what's not yours, but also give what is. So that when you get to the point when you have land and you have a harvest, don't harvest everything. Don't squeeze every ounce of it because I want you to have some leftover for the sake of generosity and caretaking for one another. I want you to have enough for yourself, sure, but also if it's stealing generosity, I want you to have enough that you as a people can be generous. This deals with the entirety of the economy even more so, Deuteronomy 15, verses 10 through 11. He's addressing every seven years, forgive the debts that you hold as the people of God. A lot of times I think in the church, we totally forget this, in American culture, we totally forget it, debts are being paid back. So many of us have debts. What would it be like if we lived in a culture that forgave debts every seven years amongst one another, right? So, Deuteronomy 15, starting verse 10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, and and him is the one who has a debt uh, that you hold. Because for this, Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. They will be there. Jesus even says, you always have the poor with you. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. He broadens it beyond just Whatever you have, whatever you're working, don't squeeze everything in it. The the edges of the field, leave them for the poor and the fatherless and the sojourner. When you harvest grapes, if they fall, just leave them. Let others come from your generosity that you don't have to keep because I'm the one providing for you. And then he gets to this point and he says, and your debts, even your debts that you hold and you enter in to a business deal as a community, every seven years, I want you to forgive them. I want you to help elevate the one who is in their poverty and who is a slave to the debt. I want you to show generosity because it's you yourselves were debts that the Lord forgives. You can think of our sins in such a way. You can think of the slavery that he's freed us out of and he's saying, I want to free you from this and I want you as a society to rise together. That economically as a whole, not only am I telling you, do not take what is not yours, but what I'm asking you to do is the flip, to give from what is, that may be even contractually rightfully yours. Can you extend a debt? Because God teaches us and instructs us to live in such a way. This isn't just the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. Luke chapter three, 11 through 14, this is Jesus. He answered them pertaining to the kingdom of God. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And he starts writing these commandments that hit on generosity, stewardship, contentment, all of it coming back to you as a people of God. When we have absolutely nothing, it's really easy to cry out to God for provision. And when we start gaining more and more, it's too easy to forget the one who has provided it all in the first place. 
And he's instructing us as individuals, don't take what's not yours, why? Because of the way that I have provided for you, you as a community need to start providing for one another. You need to start caring for one another. If, if they have no tunic, give them one. If they have no bread, give them one. And not only that, but also the stealing and the way that which we do our work nobly and honorably. If, if you're a tax collector, don't squeeze them. Only, only what is fair. If you are a soldier, don't have false accusations and threats. Be content with your wages. And so he starts expanding this idea of do not steal into you as a whole recognize that you were a people in slavery that I brought you out, that you're going to the promised land, that you're representing who I am. And by not just stealing on one side of the coin, but your generosity on the other, you will continue to show yourselves as the people of God and to show those around you who you are. And, and Paul really sums this up in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And Paul brings it back to this point where he's showing you the connective flip side of this, this, this arc of scripture, that this commandment is set in, don't steal, why? Don't steal, but instead work. It starts getting into a theology of work that we were created to work. And whatever you do in work, do it honorably, do it rightly, be content with your wages, be thankful for that. And then he keeps going, so that you may have something to share with anybody in need. Because I'm your God, I want you to move from the, the basic needs of, if is, it, is it greed, is it need, is it discontentment? I want you to move from all of your motives to recognizing me in your presence, me at work, me doing this, me providing, me delivering, and when you get to the point where you have an abundance, then you're able to say, and you're gonna then show me even again by the way that you are generous and care for one another. God is not only instructing us to not steal, but he's instructing us how to create a culture that makes stealing unnecessary. It's not just don't steal, but he's saying you're my people and I want you to live in such a way that you abolish the need for stealing by your forgiving of debts, by your generosity, by your leaving some for the poor, by your caretaking for one another, by working hard so that what you gain you can thank God as provider and then you can be generous with it and praise him and glorify him all the more. So what do we do with this? I wanna just talk through, this is the command, do not steal, and it's set in a context of generosity from the Lord. I wanna just talk through a couple of practices that I see that help us keep watch over our hearts so that greed, need, thrill, discontentment, all those motives are checked. The first one is contentment. Practice contentment whether we have much or have little, know that God himself, when he becomes incarnate as the person Jesus, the God-man, has no money to his name. Foxes have holes and birds' nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That he himself has chosen a life of God that says, I have nothing, and yet, because I am fully the Lord's, I have everything, and the sheep on a thousand hills are his. This is all his anyways. And I'm living in a longer arc 
then materialism can, can last. I'm living in an eternal way that says this was God's before any of this existed. It's God's after it when it's all redeemed in that final day. It's his. And in my simplicity, I'm going to learn contentment. To say, Lord, teach me to be content in every situation, James. Something that helps with our contentment is practicing gratitude. Gratitude, recognizing of provision, remembering what we already have. I think so much of our discontentment is caused because we stop thanking God simply in our days for what we have. When we pray for a meal, I love it when we sit at a meal and we pray and there's a, there's a blessing over the meal, but I love it when we get to turn it into Thanksgiving, right? Um, my son, my older son is three, and he's super into prayer. Like he'll, like we'll get into, <laughs> we'll get into uh, the meal time before, uh, and bef- when we pray, and he'll start doing this and like bowing his head and like looking up, like look, this is what we're doing, right? And, and then we'll start thanking God, thank you for this food, thank you for this day, thank you for, and then we'll start listing things in our day to be thankful for. And we'll get to you know some of the big things, and then he, I mean, he says like the same five things every single time, but <laughs> he loves jumping in and just starting to say thankfulness and gratitude. Uncle Jay, Auntie Linda, Reagan, uh, Bubbles, Balls, like yes, like you are, you are recognizing what you have in your day by setting aside time to specifically practice gratitude. And I think in contentment in our simplicity of what we have, we will greater gain that when we take time to practice gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, We do this thing up at, uh, it's a camp in town called Royal Family Kids Camp. Uh, It's for foster kids in El Paso County in the DHS system. Um, And multiple times a day throughout it, we have uh, a time that's called I'm Thankfuls. And it's literally just anything and everything under the sun I'm thankful for. And, uh, you know, it could be extra chicken nuggets or the fact we go go to the, the pool today, whatever it is. And these kids being in the foster system, some of them are adopted and they have an amazing home and full provision. And some of them are still in group homes where there's not this big sense of provision. But over the course of a week, you can see them starting to get into this mode of being able to recognize the good things that they do have. And I want to say it's not always material and it often shouldn't be. (laughs) Starting to say thank you for your provision, thank you for your presence, thank you for the beauty of creation when I walk out my door. Thank you for the friendships and the relation. And we start just going and there are not enough things, not enough time to list the things that we can be thankful and gratitude for. And then by the time you, you fill up a scheduled slot with how much we have and are thankful for, we have become the people of God, a people of remembrance who are reunited and remembered to all of what God has truly provided already. And then we start going, because of my gratitude, I have learned contentment in what, what, what I do have, that God, you are still here, you are still near, you still see me, you're still at work. Contentment and gratitude. The next one, these are, those first two are inward practices. The next one turns us to an outward practice of generosity. Contentment moves to gratitude, moves to generosity. And this is what Paul is teaching us. It's not just don't take 
what's not yours, but then he keeps getting down the line and work and gain so that you have something to be generous with to others, so that you as the people of God can fill in a need. And the last one I'm gonna list is hospitality and practicing hospitality, and I, I list it so quickly because hospitality is the Christian way, it's the hallmark of how we practice a community that does not have to steal. So if we're asking a question of what kind of community can we live in that abolishes the need to steal in the first place, so much of it starts with hearts of Christian hospitality. Because when I'm hospitable to you and I'm welcoming you into my home or into my time, into my life, what ends up happening is whatever I have, that's I'm starting to share. If we can practice those ideas of simplicity and contentment, then I can start moving into generosity. And in my hospitality, I'm starting to realize, hey, what I have, I'm recognizing is from the Lord and his provision in the first place. And therefore, amongst this community, come and partake in it as well. And I'm starting to practice generosity and hospitality. But then it goes to this next step that it puts us in relationship with each other. And in relationship, we start seeing the needs of one another. And when we start seeing the needs of one another, we can start filling them in. And that, as a call of community, is what we're called to. Not just do not take what's not yours, but give generously of what is. And where should it go? Well, who's got the need? And how do I know that they have it? Practice hospitality. Invite one another to lunch after church service. If you don't have time, invite them over later in the week. If you don't have time, make that 6.30 a.m. That's not when you usually get up appointment to go meet with a friend. Practice hospitality with one another so that you are so knit in community, just like that town in Italy and Siena where they know one another and they keep one another accountable. It moves from just accountability of not stealing, but into relationship where I know what you need and I can fill it up because I'm in community with you. That we have ownership of one another. That it's not just you have a debt and whatever, but as a community, we come together to help, to fill in and maybe to live out a way that God has called us to live out in the first place, saying, Lord, it's all yours, it's all your provision. And we're gonna live in such a way that what's mine is not mine, what's mine is yours, and I am a steward and a cooperative with the Holy Spirit on this earth to see needs, to fill them up, to care, to be in community together. And I think, I think this table that we come to every week, this communion table, so beautifully epitomizes this idea of do not steal. Because what happens is we come to this table and this bread and this wine and this forgiveness of our sins is not taken by us. It is given to us freely. We come to the table of the Lord and this Jesus who had nothing and yet gave himself so generously of everything in every way in perfect harmony with the Father's provision he comes and he says, and I'm gonna give even my very life. And when you come to this table, you see the extreme degree of generosity that Jesus went to to saying, it's my very life that I've given to you. So that your debts, which might be a motive for stealing, get filled up with my forgiveness and I've taken them away. And even this table, the term for it that we use often is Eucharist, which is the Greek thanksgiving. 
It's this gratitude. It's this table that we come to to say, God, thank you for what you have done. And what I'm recognizing is I'm not at a need. I'm not at want. I'm being satisfied with what you already have. And I'm coming back to a table of remembrance and thanksgiving and gratitude for what you've already done. So that yet again, my soul can be satisfied, not having an urge. It's not enough. I want more. I want newer. But you've already done it. And I'm reuniting myself to what you've already done. And in that place, I'm satisfied. I'm experiencing gratitude. I'm experiencing generosity. And I'm experiencing the hospitality of the Lord at the table. That he comes and he hosts us. That that's who Jesus is. He says, come, take, eat, drink. This is me given to you. I am your provider. I'm the one who's taken you out of the slavery of sin. And I've set you in the community of faith that you might care and mutually fill in the needs of one another. Just like in this Old Testament text, don't steal. I'm the God who's taken you from Egypt. I've made you a people, I've put my name on you. Now care for one another. Where there's debts, forgive them. Where there's needs, leave extra so you can have generosity towards one another. And create a culture, create a church where there is no need to steal because God is the provider. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask as we come to this table today for fresh eyes, renewed hearts to see your provision, to see you having already provided that which we need and then to partner with you in thanksgiving and gratitude and generosity and hospitality of one another. So that as all the commandments, Jesus, you declare are summed up with this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourselves. That we would see each other, that we would know each other, that we would love each other well to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name.